The Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 20. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I had sent you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hand, and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I was taking communion to one of our older members during Holy Week, and we walked through everything from Palm Sunday to Maundy Thursday, and then I opened my Bible and I read to her all of Luke's account of Good Friday through Easter Sunday. She thanked me. She said, it's really helpful to hear it all together like that sometimes. Then she said, my mother loved reading the Bible. I remember her reading and then finishing and then setting her Bible on the arm of her chair and then saying to me, well, you either believe it or you don't. The way she said it made it pretty obvious that her mother believed with all her heart. It seemed pretty obvious to me, too, that her mom's daughter believed it with all her heart, too. Interestingly, one of the clearest things the Bible says when it comes to the first witnesses to the first Easter is that none of them at first believed it at all. I mean, doubting Thomas is usually kind of the, the headliner, the poster child for the doubting department, but that's really not an, fire, uh, an entirely fair take, either by way of him or by way of Scripture. For what Scripture says is there's not a single one of them who, who believed it until each and every one of them saw him with their own eyes. In John's Easter Gospel, which we started with Pastor Sarah last week and we continue with this week, it says that when Mary Magdalene became the first one to see the stone rolled away from that tomb, what she right away believed is that Jesus' body had been stolen. 
So she ran to where she knew the disciples were, and she told them that. And Peter and John then ran back to the tomb with her, except it says they went all the way into the tomb and saw the linen cloths that had been wrapped around him. And it says then that they believed. But what seems clear to me from the context is that what they believed wasn't he's risen from the dead. And so, yes, it's Easter. What they believed, rather, is that Mary was right. Yes, the tomb was empty. The disciples, in John's telling, then went back into the city. Well, Mary Magdalene stayed at the tomb, at which point she became the very first person to whom the risen Christ did appear in person. And for a second time, she ran back to the disciples, this time not to say his body had been stolen, but rather to say and become the first to say, other than angels and Jesus himself, she became the first preacher of the first Easter sermon, which opened like this, I have seen the Lord. John doesn't say whether they believed her this time or not. I'm thinking pretty much not. Because in our reading for today, which in the context of John's gospel immediately follows that Mary's Easter sermon uh, that we heard last week, although it's a few hours now later. It's still Easter Sunday, but it's later in the day, where it says the disciples then were still right where Mary had found them, isolated together in that house whose doors, now John adds for the first time, were locked for fear of the Jews. Does that sound like they had believed Mary? I think not, maybe so much. Although I surely don't judge them for that. For unlike we, most of us, who come to Easter morning each year knowing how the story ends, even before we get there, and then yes, I suppose we believe it or we don't, they thought that that story had ended on Friday. I mean, there is not even a hint in Scripture of even a single anybody thinking on Saturday something like, yeah, that was brutal for sure, but remember, he'd said, he said he'd come back tomorrow, so let's go decorate eggs. So no, even after Mary had preached her first Easter sermon, they weren't huddled in faith and Bible study to the lingering aroma of lilies and eggs and blueberry muffins. They were huddled in grief and fear, both of which, of course, have an almost palpable aroma of their own. And as they grieved, what they were afraid of, says John, is that the same ones who had done what they'd done to Jesus would come now looking to do the same thing to them. Although it doesn't say so in so many words, it occurs to me that it wouldn't shock me if that actually wasn't the only thing they were afraid of. Because let's remember, every single one of them had each in their own ways betrayed, denied, and abandoned Jesus. And now Mary says he's back? And she's seen him? It leaves me pondering whether or not there's even just a chance that maybe to the degree that maybe they did believe Mary even just a little tiny bit, maybe they were also huddled behind locked doors for fear of him being the one to come find them. Then to say to them, you knotheads, how much clearer could I have been? I can't believe you people. You're fired. That kind of fear does happen, right? 
the fear often mixed with shame that we feel when we've done something we're now ashamed of, something wrong that we said we would never do again. And in those moments, we lock ourselves up in our rooms, or maybe more often we lock ourselves up in our heads or in our hearts, not wanting to see or be seen by the one who knows what we did or the one whom we wronged. In any event, suddenly Jesus is there in the locked room with him. Locked doors, it turns out, didn't prevent him from entering any more than a stone sealing a tomb had prevented him from exiting. Which tells us that though this is him in his actual and recognizable body, I mean, he shows them the wounds in his hands and feet and sides. So it's clearly him, and it's not a ghost. He invites them to touch him. But nevertheless, we also see here that resurrected bodies, though recognizable for who they are, are apparently not 100% identical to the bodies they were before. For neither locks on doors nor stones on tombs are an obstacle to the body of the resurrected one on Easter Day, as well as on our Easter Day to come. God, of course, could. Maybe possibly one day some quantum physicist or something maybe could explain to us exactly how it is that that works, but that explanation would be way above my pay grade, I'm sure. So I stick with St. Paul's explanation, which we're in a very early Easter sermon that he writes, rather than using the language of physics, he uses the language of poetry. Sometimes it says more than anything else can. When he says that when, we're, when we die in Christ and we're the ones raised, our mortal bodies will have been clothed in immortality and our perishable bodies will have been clothed in imperishability. And then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And we'll be the ones to discover then that neither caskets nor urns nor stones nor six feet of dirt will be an obstacle to the future that Jesus has prepared for us. And, well, I suppose it's true. You believe it or you don't. As I said, I personally have absolutely no comprehension of how the physics and logistics of that could all work or what in the end that could all possibly look like. But you know what? I have gotten to a point in my life where try as I might, I can't help it. I believe it with my whole heart. That said, and very tellingly, I think, the first thing he says to them is not... I'm back. Let's all hop on the heaven train. Swing low, sweet chariot. It's time to go home. No, what he says rather is, peace be with you. And what they then say is, well, apparently nothing. And so he shows them his hands and his side, shows them he's not a ghost, shows them he's not someone they don't know, shows them that he's him, having gone through all that he did go through, but now back again. And that 
at long last, I'm thinking 10 or 12 hours now after Mary had preached to them her first Easter sermon, that is when we are told they rejoiced. And in their hearts and minds and souls, in other words, now finally, now finally, not at sunrise, but at sunset, it was Easter. And having seen him with their own eyes, they believed with all their hearts. He said to them again, peace be with you. So, and this is telling, I think, the first gift of Easter was not the promise of heaven after we die, but rather the gift of peace and joy as we live. Knowing that he lives with us and for us, no matter what the hell the world had done or will ever do. The first gift Jesus gives, in other words, is not world peace, not yet. He promises that too in its time but rather the peace of God that passes all understanding. Risen from the dead, it's a peace he gives them. It's a peace born of the promise proved on Easter and there is that there is not a blessed thing, there's not a damned thing either that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Then he gave them a second gift, breathing onto them not just the breath of his spirit, but the breath that was to the very Spirit of God. And breathing it in, the peace he'd spoken to them now welled within them. And they knew then, with their whole hearts, that when it comes to sinners like them, who surely had sinned, the sins they surely had sinned, gift-wrapped, Within the peace of God that passes all understanding is the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. And then the third thing he gave them for Easter, which still is not yet an immediate boarding pass to an immediate first-class flight to heaven. No, the third thing he gives them, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is the command, the commission, and the authority to be the forgiving power of God turned loose into a world that sure as heaven has a lot of forgiveness it needs, given its ongoing track record of putting its trust and believing with all its heart in rulers and powers and kingdoms that aren't of God, aren't forgiving, and don't raise the dead. They reek of death. N.T. Wright observes, and I'm quite paraphrasing, that when God in Genesis 2 breathes into the man he formed from the dirt and the woman he formed from a rib, they with that breath were then raised up to life in this world. That life was life that both Scripture and our history books would go on to teach us, and our news platforms keep reminding us, is life that those whom God lovingly created have loved to squander midst their worship of and loving service to their favorite other gods.
on Easter Sunday, clearly echoing that scene in Genesis 2, the resurrected Christ, breathing the Spirit into his followers, raises them up to new life. Not just in heaven someday, though that promise is there someday, but also to raise his followers up to new life here and now and every day in God's and Adam's and Eve's and our world. And it all begins, at least says Jesus, when peace between God and you moves out to become peace between God and you and others through the healing power of forgiveness. And so he says as he breathes new life into them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The message translation puts it this way, if you forgive someone's sins, they're gone for good. If you don't forgive sins, what are you going to do with them? Well, we know the answer to that question, actually, do we not? Because what we do, all of us do it, right? We, we hang on to the sins of others. And when we do, they are retained. By others, yes, but by us, too. Forgiveness frees sinners. Be they the sinners who did the sinning or the sinners who were sinned against and aren't ready to let go of that ever. Forgiveness raises the dead to new life. Be they the ones forgiven or the ones doing the forgiving. Or as is the case most often when we're talking about real people in the real world, when we're the ones who need both to be forgiven and to be forgiving. And in both cases, thus, to be raised from the dead. On Maundy Thursday, those of you who were here at worship were invited after confession of sin to come kneel at the altar where either Pastor Sarah or I, remembering the words in this text, put our hands on your head and said, in obedience to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive your sin. The last one to come forward on my side was my wife. And I put my hands on her head and said those words, absolving by the command of Jesus her sin. Then on something of a spur of the moment, I, and I've never done this before, but I bent down and said to her, you don't have to do this if it feels awkward, but if I knelt down, would you forgive my sin? She nodded, and I knelt, and she did. It was, of course, if anyone noticed, I don't know that anybody noticed, it was a reminder that Jesus didn't give the power of forgiveness just to the clergy of his church to heal the world with. He gave the power of forgiveness to his whole church to heal the world with. But that moment on Monday, Thursday, Kathy, forgiving my sin, felt to me like as profound an absolution I could ever receive from anyone this side of Jesus himself. The reason, of course, being that she knows more about me than anyone this side of Jesus. Jesus, of course, knows every single thing about me, 
and about you too. He didn't do all that he did, after all, to forgive some hypothetical or liturgically recited sins. He did all he did to forgive your sin. So, in obedience to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive your sin. So, so if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And that, says Jesus, every time is Easter in this world. If you retain the sins of any, he goes on to say, they are retained by both them and you. And that, my goodness, when will we learn, is just more death reeking in the world. So, so what are you going to do with that? Amen.